0: Hey now, we are Getting Over, and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times, Dada, with your weekly WWE edition of your favorite professional wrestling podcast. That's right, Getting Over is back to break down every single thing that happened Monday night on Raw. Friday night on SmackDown, and today's show is going to be a little bit unique. But before we get into that, a reminder to please head on over to Apple Podcasts, find Getting Over. You should already be on our page listening to this episode, and drop that five-star rating and review. Let us know how much you love the show. We are trending in the right direction. On Apple Podcasts, we have a five-star average. We have over 250 reviews at this point. The key number for this show is 500 reviews. There are way more of you than that listening. Please do us a favor. Take a couple moments out of your day. Give us the five-star rating and review. And then I can stop asking for it twice every single show. Also, don't forget to follow us on Twitter at GettingOverCast. And you can follow me personally at Silverstein. Adam. Now, normally, this is the part of the show where I would introduce my WWE co-host, Chris Vanini. Unfortunately, due to some things that are happening in both of our real live jobs right now, Chris is unable to jump on today's show, and even I, the Silver King, am taping this exceedingly early Tuesday morning. You guys know I am not a coffee person, so there's no caffeine, there's no uh, jolt of energy. I'm trying to find that energy as I do the show by talking about WWE. But not to worry, this is only a one-week absence from Chris. He will be back. He sends his regards. He apologizes that he's not able to give you his absolute fire takes on the world of WWE. But hey, not to worry. He will be back next week. To make up for Chris not being here on Tuesday show, I am going to have someone special join me on Thursday show to break down NXT and AEW. I have yet to figure out whether that person will be able to join me for the entire show but suffice it to say, you all will be very happy at my special guest on Thursday's edition of Getting Overcast. So that's it for the intro. We are going to get into the main portion of the show. And there is so much to talk about in the world of WWE. I don't want to waste a second longer. I want to get right to it. And you know how we get right to it on this show we always start with the main event. It's, it's the main event. And look, folks. In the world of WWE, if you choose any given week, you can always start negative, right? You can always find something to nitpick, to to rip apart, and there's plenty. I will be talking Retribution during this show. I will be talking week two of Raw Underground and some other things I did not like. But on Getting Over, you guys know we tried to at least start you off on a positive note. And there was no more positive note than the final 30 minutes of Raw Raw on Monday night. Say what you will about the other two and a half hours of Raw. The final 30 minutes of that show is as good as professional wrestling can be. Not just from an in-ring perspective. Yeah, you can have better matches than what we got with Randy Orton and Kevin Owens. But from a storytelling, emotional perspective, booking and storytelling-wise, my God, WWE got it right for the final 30 minutes on Monday night. So we started, of course, with Randy Orton against Kevin Owens. And despite that match being built nicely last week, with the involvement of Ric Flair basically telling Kevin Owens he was becoming more of a guidance counselor than a badass professional wrestler, WWE made a big mistake early in the show by providing basically little to no recap of why this match was happening. Now, if you watched last week, you know what happened in WWE, they did indicate that Flair and Owens had a conversation. But that was such a short segment last week that considering the efforts they gave us over the final 30 minutes, they probably should have replayed, if not the entire thing, at least 50% of it to kind of say, hey, don't forget this happened last week. That's why this match isn't just happening tonight, but is in the main event segment of the show. They did none of that, right? They they didn't tell us any of that. Into the match itself, look, it was good. Uh, Good action. Orton and Owens worked really well together. I thought it was smart booking for them. You know, the RKO and the Stunner are both cutters. So to play that off one another earlier in the match with uh, Owens being unable to hit, Orton being unable to hit, that was pretty smart. And I thought the booking at the end was pretty intelligent as well. The idea that Orton not only went over clean, which he needed to do with the RKO ahead of a WWE Championship match at the second biggest pay-per-view of the year, But the only reason he did win so clean is that Owens got overconfident and started trying to imitate the Viper. Maybe considering what Flair told Owens last week and what Orton has now done to him this week, you have a storyline with Kevin Owens developing where he's like, you know what? Maybe I am a little too much of a goody two-shoes. Maybe I need to get my head on right. Because look, Kevin Owens, he's been back for a decent period of time and he's not really doing much. Uh, You know, this guy does not always have to be a main eventer. But he does need to be someone who you think of as a potential main eventer, as a mid-card challenger, as a mid-card champion. And right now, he's kind of just in like a Miz role where he hosts and you know he had success previously, but you don't necessarily see more success for him on the horizon. So they don't need to protect Kevin Owens necessarily, but they simultaneously need to do more with him because there's not a lot of top-level babyfaces on Raw right now, and he's certainly one of them. Now, moving into the part we really want to talk about, Randy Orton killing the legend that was Ric Flair. If you were not on the same page as me, that Randy Orton was the midway point MVP of 2020 and the front runner at least to win this show's Wrestler of the Year Award, well, hopefully now you are. Coming out of this main event, folks, this was as masterful as you can get, not just in wrestling, but in WWE. And you're talking decades upon decades of great WWE storytelling, even mixed amongst the crap. WWE, when they wanna get it right, they can get it right. This was a masterwork by both Orton and Ric Flair. And let's be honest, Flair in that segment may well have given the last meaningful promo and last significant wrestling angle of his career. So much about this was perfect, and this is all pretty much off the cuff this week. I have my normal outline, but you know, I didn't really get into the details because of everything that's been going on in the world of college football. I've been busy. It is so hard for me to put it into words, speaking extemporaneously like I am right now. The storyline was smart, okay? Orton being mad at Flair for putting him in the Owens match unnecessarily, seeing Flair, this guy he used to look up to as a shell of his former self due to the coma, hospitalization, and now having a pacemaker, blaming Flair's ego and the fact that he can't let go of being the 16-time champion, being the nature boy, being in the spotlight. And then Flair coming back and answering that Orton was right the entire time. Flair does crave the spotlight. He loves being on Raw in 2020 at age 71. He wants to walk the aisle with Orton and see Orton break the record that he mentioned in the earlier segment. He wants to see Orton become not just a 16-time WWE champion, 17-time or more. It all fit together so perfectly. And even me explaining it doesn't do it justice.
1: You want to see me get emotional? You know why I can't get mad? You know why? Because after 31 days being in intensive care and being in a coma for 12 of them, I woke up and all I wanted in life was to tell the people who I hadn't told that I loved them and to make sure everybody that I loved knew how I felt. I called around everybody that, that mattered to me because you have to be this close to where I was to know what that feeling is and I, I'm not trying to take anything from you I'm just walking down the aisle with you man having a good time I'm all I am right now I'm Charlotte's dad and want to be part of Randy Orton's life I've been there man I ain't Ric Flair anymore, you're right but I'm a big fan of you and you're the guy to break my record that's all I want
0: I mean, let that sit, right? Listen to that in the context of knowing what Ric Flair has gone through as smart wrestling fans, which people who listen to this podcast, I'm not saying you're smart for listening to this podcast. I'm saying if you're going so far as to listen to a wrestling podcast, you are a smart fan. You are more keyed in on the industry than others who are not. Although if you're listening to this podcast, you're an especially smart fan. But think about that in the context of what we know and what we've discussed over the years has happened with Ric Flair in reality. And listen to that audio without the context of the visual, you get teared up. I teared up a little bit listening to that right now. I mean, that's real life. That's Ric Flair talking about, you know, maybe the stuff about wanting to see Orton break his record or, you know, some of the other stuff is a little kayfabe. But those emotions, those thoughts, those are thoughts that Ric Flair really had. When I spoke with Ric Flair, I saw him at the national championship game a couple of years ago. It was incredible to see him in person, by the way. He was weak and frail and, you know, I shook his hand and he was there, but he he really wasn't, you know? I've met probably Ric Flair two or three times in my life. Nothing personal. I don't actually know him in any way, but I've shaken his hand a few times and it hurt me as a wrestling fan to see him that way. And now to see him previously rejuvenated and able to cut promos again and walking around and strutting and doing his Ric Flair thing, but still mentally be this old man who's 71, he knows he's on his way out. He knows this may well be his last angle, his last promo of significance that he cuts in his professional wrestling career. That hit me on Monday night. And I think any long-term fan of WWE, and let's be honest, granted their ratings and and the age of people watching their shows at this point, I think most of their fans are longtime fans, that had to hit you. I mean, he absolutely nailed that, and Randy Orton nailed it before as well. And you knew what was coming after. You knew it the entire time, and it didn't matter one iota. This was wrestling at its finest. The embrace, the whimpering, the crying. Orton gently turning Ric Flair around because he was going to leave the ring. Gently, kind of, if you can call it that, hitting him with the low blow, grabbing his shoulder pads, and gently, carefully placing Ric Flair on the canvas and methodically backing up into the corner to do the punt kick. Flair is obviously not cleared for contact, but they had to kill the legend of Ric Flair. The Randy Orton story had to end with this, so they figured out a way to do it, okay? The punt kick and the flickering of the light using the retribution storyline to intermingle with this one to create a reason for the lights to go out while Randy Orton did the punt kick so that in real life, obviously, he wasn't able to to do it. The weaving of those storylines was brilliant. I've been very critical of Raw, as of late especially, and will be very critical of it later in the show. But as I said, I wanted to start this episode on a high note. This was a high note. This was as high of a note as WWE can give us. And even the light use of Drew McIntyre, the quick promo earlier in the show, coming out a moment too late, And only being able to see that Randy Orton from a distance with that stare down to close Raw. That was nice. No heroic save. No grand beatdown. Just anger and hate. Absolutely brilliant stuff. And I paused there to let that sink in because that is brilliant. The opposite of brilliance is retribution. Continuing to, I don't know, commit petty crimes on Raw and SmackDown. Let's actually go through what happens with this group, with this faction. They are, it seems, legitimately a faction on Friday and then on Monday. And then I will give you my opinion. So on SmackDown, you have microphone and lighting issues in hour one. Same as Raw. The distractions, technical difficulties, all forgotten about for the better part of an hour until the very end of hour two commentary and talent couldn't keep the name Retribution out of their mouths. Every single time something happened, oh my god, is this Retribution? It's a light flickering. Maybe there's a thunderstorm in the area. Calm down, Mike. Absolutely nothing was left to the imagination with this group. Think about Monday, when WWE told us before last week's Raw even started, that there was a new faction somewhat what their motivations were without actually telling us didn't name them the show goes off the air and then WWE posts on their website hey their names retribution they're they're giving us nothing where we can dive into it and speculate and wonder maybe they tease it with an R logo at some point and you wonder i wonder what they're going to call themselves let's start talking about some R names and then the following week someone reveals it we're here for retribution or something this is another example of WWE overwriting and overbooking stuff. So that's all they're doing, flickering lights on SmackDown. Until the final segment, when Retribution, wearing all black and black masks, and carrying a bunch of different types of crowbars and bats and stuff, runs into the ring, screaming and jumping around like they're in a bounce house. One guy with a baseball bat starts pounding on the canvas, which serves no purpose, what's that going to accomplish? Then they bang on the plexiglass, which is obviously shatterproof. Now they're outside, they're beating up some PC talent, pretty weak that they come in when the ring is empty and the show seems to be over, beat up nobodies rather than actual superstars. Now there's spray paint and they're drawing squiggly lines. Okay, here we go. There's a WWE logo and it's crossed out. Okay. They draw draw a line through the word SmackDown on the ring apron. Cool. That's something. And now, holy shit, there's a chainsaw and they're cutting ropes. Okay, I am now buying in tiny little pieces that they're actually creating some destruction. They seem to be anti-WWE, anti-Smackdown. They're cutting down the ring ropes. So coming out of Smackdown, I'm still hating Retribution because I think it's crazy lame is the best way I can put it at this point. But at least there was some actual aggressiveness, a little bit of violence. Let's see what they do on Monday night. So now we go back to Raw on Monday and the lights go out for one second during an entrance. They briefly flickered during the Bailey Oscar match. And then they went out in the main event, as I mentioned earlier. Decent cafe booking to help Ric Flair avoid the real life contact. But what else did they do in the show? They threw a cinder block weekly. They threw it like on the ground, basically, through a WWE Performance Center window, which was previously crashed through, let's not forget, by the Viking Raiders and Street Profits, and walked on top of a car that was already turned over. And the whole time, Through everything they did last Monday, on Friday, and this Monday, they're basically just yelling the word, yeah. It's like their Killer Mike or Usher. They just don't know any other words. I mean, I pulled this sound clip from Raw on Monday night. I could have pulled it from any other show and it would have sounded exactly the same. But this is what Retribution did and said while they were on top of the car, around the car, and looking into the camera. All right. Look what we did. What the hell is this? What are they going to do next? Change my sprinkler timers? Toilet paper the ring? Give Michael Cole a wedgie? Paint the raw logo blue and the Smackdown logo red? Throw cold water on me while I'm in the shower? This is a group of adults presumably seeking retribution for being wronged in some way and they're acting like children or maybe teenagers creating hijinks starving for parental attention. Are they waiting for like a 70 year old security guy to come and chase them out of the clubhouse? It is so painfully obvious that Retribution was rushed without any thought given to what they were gonna be like. They're wearing all black, almost exactly like the stupid ninjas. Why not have a simple R logo that they can wear and spray paint on things? They don't have any catchphrases or a message. Like I said, why not have one of them grab a camera and say, we're here for Retribution at the very beginning that last Monday, or on Friday, that way you at least know and that's how you learn their name. Instead, as I said, all of this was given away previously. Imagine if they just were repeating something similar, like they took out a car and a guy grabs a camera. It's our time. Okay, at least that's something. They're randomly causing mischief and committing petty crimes, misdemeanors in and around the Performance Center. Nothing they're doing is actually affecting the superiors in the WWE office or the big superstars in the ring, I guess maybe besides MVP who claims he lost that match. Remember, we have another edition of SmackDown with this, whatever this is, on Friday before WWE even has a chance to make changes or adjustments to it because they're taping two weeks at a time. If they even come up with an actual direction, we're not going to find out until Monday. And by then, after four episodes of this version of Retribution, the dorkiest, stupidest faction of all time. And I'm even putting that over like the oddities and some real stupid shit WWE did back in the day. After four episodes of this, are they going to be able to save this when these people reveal themselves and you realize that Dominic Dijakovic, which hopefully won't be his name anymore, and Tommaso Ciampa, former NXT badass champion. And by the way, I don't know that these people are there. It just kind of looked like they were based on the eyes and some of the stuff and their and the voices, but let's just make believe to them are they are in it, both of them. They were pull off these masks, and you see that's what those two badass dudes have been doing for the last two weeks? Oh my god. Zero point zero. I could probably talk about this for another 10 minutes. I'm gonna move on because it's to the point that. I'm just gonna get more upset and I wanna have fun with the show. I wanna, I want you guys to enjoy listening. So I'm gonna talk about some other positive things. I'm gonna move on to Sasha Banks and Bailey. And in this dynamic between Sasha Banks and Bailey, the turnabout is fair play storyline with Banks accepting and making challenges on behalf of Bailey. It's really smart booking. Obviously, it harkens back to when things were switched the opposite way and Bailey was having Sasha Banks basically fight all her battles. And what it tells me that they are still going in this direction and extending it is they decided to blow up the idea of them wrestling and feuding at SummerSlam and push it to WrestleMania which is awesome because they're like Hansel so hot right now this does deserve a WrestleMania feud it's it's a situation where ultimately you do want to see Sasha Banks get turned on by Bailey Bailey become a mega heel Banks become a tweener a little bit of a face and win that title off Bailey At WrestleMania. So on Friday, I really enjoyed Sasha Banks and Bayley sucking up to Stephanie McMahon, talking about what's best for business and promoting the WWE Network. Steph, you know, for her, everything that we talk about her trying to take credit for the women's division, she's been pretty good in her last two appearances, not being a heel, just kind of being like a no-nonsense boss. However, last time her rules were ridiculous and so easy to overcome that Sasha and Bayley took advantage of them. Unlike last time, On Friday, the decision she she made actually made sense with Sasha Banks definitely defending her title no matter what at SummerSlam and Bayley facing a to-be-determined opponent, the winner of a three-brand battle royal on this upcoming week's SmackDown. People may get up in arms about she's a SmackDown Women's Champion and she may fight someone from Raw or NXT. You guys know I normally would, but in kayfabe, she has defeated everyone on her brand, many of them twice. So it does make sense to find a completely new challenger for her Unfortunately, I would bet dollars to donuts that it's gonna be Naomi who wins that battle royal. We know what WWE already does with her in battle royals. They allow her to be athletic and sho- it's, it's basically been the best showcase of Naomi's athleticism in her entire career. So it would make sense for them to book a battle royal only for her to ultimately win. And look, maybe Lacey Evans interferes at SummerSlam and Naomi doesn't take the title. I would be very shocked if Naomi actually beats Bailey for the title. But going into Friday, if you had to ask me to bet my life on someone winning that battle royal, it would definitely be Naomi. Now, back on Monday, obviously, we have Bailey fighting Sasha Banks' battle for her because of what Banks said last week. Uh, if Asuka lost that match, then I guess they would have found another number one contender. But obviously, Asuka beat Bailey and now gets to face Sasha Banks at SummerSlam. It was a little strange that WWE didn't spend a shred of promo time on the entire show Promoting this match, despite it being at the start of the 10 p.m. hour. In fact, hour three on Raw, when you consider it was mostly this match, a couple Raw underground segments, and the entire Randy Orton, Kevin Owens, Ric Flair thing was exceedingly strong. But WWE did a very poor job, and I'll explain this a little bit later, building to hour three. They gave us a good hour three, finally. They did nothing to tell us these matches are coming up in this specific hour. Oh, and by the way... Here's a promo from Sasha. Here's, you know, stuff that happened between Kevin Owens and Rick Flair last week. They basically gave us a very short Drew McIntyre promo that you didn't think would really have any impact maybe on the main event and nothing from Sasha Banks and Bailey who are basically their two biggest stars right now. Anyway, this match, Oscar and so- and Bailey was a total banger. I mean, shit. Bailey hit a dominator and an Indian deathlock here. There were tons of counters, reversals, submissions, these two ran the gamut in a match that was given a pretty decent amount of time. And after a lot of convoluted booking in this feud, in the totality of this feud, this match was perfect. This was like a four and a half star match on television between two of the best women's wrestlers in the world. What Bailey was able to do, the skill she was able to showcase working with Asuka, and we've said it about Sasha Banks in the two months prior here, was absolutely incredible. Okay, And the finish with Asuka getting a clean win over the SmackDown Women's Champion with the Asuka lock should not be lost on anyone. That was great. Now we have a match at SummerSlam, Sasha Banks versus Asuka 3. Extremely excited for that. The first two were great, even if the finishes on both of them sucked. But we wonder, what is the booking going to be for SummerSlam? Is Sasha Banks actually going to lose again in her first title defense and have another title reign under 30 days. Every single one of her WWE Women's Championship reigns has been under 27 days and she's lost on her first title defense. She's never successfully defended the title. Is that really what they're gonna do again after we waited a calendar year since her return, basically, for her to get a title? I don't know, okay? But we'll find out. Maybe if Bailey is a reason for that loss, and Sasha's able to use some of that as motivation, then maybe that starts the rift that ultimately culminates in the blow-up ahead of WrestleMania. But if it's not the case, and she loses clean to Asuka, it's just going to be continued really rough booking for Sasha Banks. And that is going to be a horror show. <laughs> How do you like that, huh? I would not like that, Bailey. Now, moving on to the main angle for SmackDown, This will close the main event and then we'll move on to some quick hitters. Uh, Bray Wyatt, The Fiend, Braun Strowman, Alexa Bliss, this entire deal, okay? I'm glad they opened the show with this. And it was certainly a cliffhanger coming out of last week. So it was great to kind of tease The Fiend appearing later, quote, with someone special. They did a really good job basically saying, we know that you loved this. We're going to give it to you today. Stay tuned for the rest of the show. That's what I want WWE to always do every single episode. Then on top of that, they gave us The Fiend making his full entrance and the theatrics that I feel are completely necessary with it. You know, it's so funny that just a couple of weeks ago, Chris and I on the show were talking about how disappointed we were that, hey, you know, The Fiend's great, but they've really toned down the effort they've put in to making him feel like a big deal when he does appear from all the lights and the sounds and all the cool stuff they did to just turning the lights off and turning them back on. They really downplayed the coolness of The Fiend when you do see him in person. They fixed that last week with Alexa Bliss and this week again when he made his entrance. And then obviously they come back from commercial break, I guess, or from a video package, I forgot. And Alexa Bliss is in the ring. I loved the interaction with her where she seemed to be accepting of him and somehow that freaked out The Fiend a little bit. The rest of the segment was not bad, I want to make it clear that I liked it, but it was confusing. First, people are eating up The Fiend and Alexa Bliss stuff, and you immediately have Strowman come on camera and say he doesn't care about her. Not in a way that you don't believe him, where he's trying to say, ah, I don't care about her, like they do in movies where, like, yeah, shoot the hostage, I don't care. It wasn't even like that. It, was tr- it seemed like he was truly saying, I don't care about this woman. Well, Great booking, so much fans for being excited about where that's going. Then you have The Fiend, who's clearly a total heel, yet the face universal champion, whose gimmick is a runaway freight train, is now the most evil son of a bitch in the world. Over The Fiend. The promo cut by Strowman was actually great. I was invested in it and found myself caring about him and the angle. I I was wondering, what the hell are they going with here? But the confusion that I now have about Strowman's status and Alexa Bliss's role in this entire thing kind of distracted me from the quality of what I thought I saw. Now, on the other hand, perhaps all hope is not lost with Bliss. She's the first person to stop the Fiend from doing the Mandible Claw, and she grazed his cheek, which was an interesting dynamic. Is she gonna let him in, in a different manner of speaking? That's the most action I've had all year. I don't know but i am at least interested to see how they follow it up if they follow it up friday night on smackdown so that's the main event of today's show and we are going to break down everything that else ha- that happened monday and friday on raw and smackdown respectively before we get to that unfortunately some you know difficult news kamala former wwe superstar died this week at age 70 the man uh, actually known as james harris he wrestled in Mid-South, WCCW, World Class Championship Wrestling. In the 80s, he was in WWF on and off for a couple of years in the 80s, a couple of years in the 90s, and then he made occasional appearances in the 2000s as well. He was actually a member of the Dungeon of Doom in WCW. But James Harris Kamala, totally unique wrestler, who, despite never being overly successful, is one of those characters you will just always remember when you think of WWE or WWF, from the 80s, you think of, and even the 90s, of course, you think of Kamala. Really, you think of Kamala and The Undertaker. Uh, Unfortunately, he had been sick for many years, uh, uh, diabetes, high blood pressure, things like that. And he did get coronavirus and died uh, this past week. So Kamala, dead at age 70. Certainly, you know, we've seen plenty of wrestlers pass. Uh, Over the years, over the course of this show and, and the time I've been doing audio, certainly another sad loss, and someone who made his mark on the professional wrestling industry. Continuing on here with our reviews of SmackDown and Raw, folks, we got to talk Raw Underground. We have to do it, okay? And I'm going to go ahead before I talk about Raw Underground, and I'm going to read you a text message I got from Chris Vanini during the show on Monday night. He says, tell the listeners this is exactly what I didn't want from Raw Underground, to have a carved out segment stop and start for commercials. It was better when it was littered throughout the show and it was better when it looked like a club. So there are agreements and disagreements from me on Chris's point there. We're gonna to get to those right now. In terms of what actually happened on Raw Underground, we saw real wrestlers this time. Yes, we did get end up getting Dolph Ziggler and uh, um, Eric from the Viking Raiders and then the Hurt Business at the end of the show last week. but. A lot of what we saw were people we had not known before, a lot of jobbers. And Th- Daba Kato debuted last week. And you're just like, even though you know Babatunde, you're like, what exactly are they doing here? It took a while for them to start showing real people. Well, this week, almost everyone, if you were are someone who watches NXT especially, you know them. You saw Riddick Moss beat Cal Bloom. You saw Arturo Ruas beat an enhancement talent. Daba Kato came back. He beat an enhancement talent. Yeah, we're gonna talk about that. <laughs> and Shayna Baszler then, Comes in and beats the crap out of three enhancement talents. For a second, I thought Baszler and Dabakato might fight. Then we would have had something I'd be interested in. Obviously, they weren't gonna do that, and obviously that did not happen. And what the hell was up with Dabakato grabbing that man's crotch for what felt like five minutes? This is a brawl. He's twice the guy's size, and he needs to do that. Clock at zero! Okay, notwithstanding that. These two editions of Raw Underground were taped at once last Monday. So as I said on last week's show, I think it's fair to see if they listen to the reaction from fans, learn any lessons, change the presentation, and make adjustments. It looks like they pulled clips of the dancers from whatever they had taped for this week's show, didn't show them. And because of that, I think, to Chris's point, this was more structured than it was last week because some of the transitions they had taped, they no longer had. Last week was also an introduction, whereas this week you would have thought would be more like what it normally will be. But they already are going back on what their promise was, which, that raw, which was that Raw Underground would be the third hour of Raw, or you know littered throughout the third hour of Raw. This entire segment, and it was split up among, I think, two or three segments, maybe it was only two but it only occurred in a 35 minute window from basically 9.55 until 10.30 because the entire final 30 minutes of the show were set for the, you know, Ric Flair, Randy Orton, Kevin Owens situation. So I don't know why they couldn't have ended the Orton-Owens match, done a Raw Underground look in and then come back to the ring where Orton was catching his breath and Flair was gingerly walking into the ring. And then you just keep continuing on with your story. So already they kind of lost me there. But where the hell was the Hurt Business? Last week, the Hurt Business dominated the end of Raw Underground. They said they were taking it over for the foreseeable future and they weren't going anywhere. This week, they cut their only promo and they had their only segment of the entire show in the ring in the VIP lounge. Why not put the VIP lounge in the back or the side of Raw Underground and make people come see you there if you've now taken it over and you run the place? And they had no relation to Raw Underground anymore. So what was the point of them doing that last week if now they're not involved in it? It's just a total mess. To this point, Raw Underground is awful and without any purpose. What's the point of the fights? They aren't actually putting anyone over having real superstars fight jobbers. If you're gonna do this, then you need to have Riddick Moss fight and maybe beat Eric, right? These guys beating up on nobodies accomplishes nothing. Why could you not have Baszler, instead of being in Raw Underground, be in the ring, say everyone back there is scared to fight her, challenge some people in the performance center crowd, no one answers her, she goes in there and starts beating people up. It's just the same effect as doing it in Raw Underground. Yeah, I know she put her mouthpiece in, but I mean, she does that in the ring anyway. She would have looked no less beastly in the ring, in the regular ring, than she did in Raw Underground, slamming women into the canvas. My biggest issue with Raw Underground is that this could actually be appealing if it's handled properly. They do have a smidgen of success on their hands. They could figure out a way to cycle people in and out through Raw Underground, build them up as legitimate competitors, and then give them opportunities on the main show. I discussed last week the idea of having, maybe now it's our truth instead of Tazawa accidentally run into Raw Underground, someone take the title from him, and then pull a WWE Hardcore Championship. Have someone, you know, nail that thing with a sledgehammer or a pin hammer, something that's going to break the plates, tape it up, write Raw Underground on it. Now you have a Raw Underground Championship. These are things that they can do to make this actually interesting, where you have Dabakato win that title and, and have Riddick Moss try to fight him and all these other guys, and maybe some do better than others, and then whoever eventually beats him, the king of Raw Underground, becomes this awesome superstar who now moves on to the main roster and you really believe in because he just beat the hell out of a really big guy. There are successes to be had with this. So far through two weeks, it is a 0.0. I'm not going to play the sound effect again. It is a total failure. I am going to give them this one more week to see if they do anything. Now that they have feedback from fans, from viewers internally in the office, from other superstars, there are plenty of people over the last two weeks who have now waited on this And if WWE wants to listen and make something out of this, they have the opportunity. But if next Monday we get the exact same shit we got the last two weeks, this period written off forever will be a failure. Okay, it seems we're going positive and negative, flipping in opposite directions here back and forth on today's show. I'm going to go back to the positive side of the Silver King, the Seth Rollins-Dominic Mysterio contract signing. Samoa Joe was fabulous as the host here. Not only in terms of the introduction and how he gave Rollins the side eye the entire time, but he cut a, cut a really large portion of Dominic's promo for him. Joe was great running down Rollins, and it leads me to believe he may either get involved at SummerSlam or be Rollins' next opponent, depending how the storyline unfolds. If Rollins beats Dominic and Ray doesn't show up and there's someone else that needs to fight him, I could see Samoa Joe stepping into that role before we eventually get the... Seth Rollins, Rey Mysterio blow-off that I think we're all expecting. In terms of Dominic, he did his job just fine in that segment. His promo was pretty solid. It got his point across. It was better than his father's at the respective ages. Uh, Ray has never been a strong promo. Dominic is just starting out. And I think I also want to give the segment a little bit of extra credit for not ending in violence, meaning the contract signing itself. Now, it didn't need to because they had that planned later. But still, the contract signing that ended as a host that was strong, played Peacemaker and ended without violence as a win for me. You had Seth Rollins beat Humberto Carrillo a couple minutes later, short match. Rollins won with a stomp as it should have been considering he needs to be dominant ahead of SummerSlam. I really liked Rollins staring down Dominic and then Murphy and Rollins absolutely beating the shit out of Dominic with kendo sticks after the match. Dominic took an absolute beating with like 20 kendo stick shots. I don't know if you guys saw photos. He was black, blue, purple, green, orange, every color you could be bleeding from both his front and his back. That kid deserves a lot of credit. That was almost like hazing. Like, oh, you're a WWE superstar and you're 23 years old and your father's Rey Mysterio. Well, this is what we're gonna do to welcome you into the fraternity. You know what? I don't care if it was that. I, am not, I don't like hazing. I don't like the idea of it. But in this particular case, it worked for great television. It was a really nice touch as well that they actually explained on commentary. And I tweeted this during the show. I missed it. I listened back. They actually explained on commentary that Samoa Joe would be fired if he got involved because he was not medically cleared to compete. So they gave you a storyline reason why the thing you're wondering isn't happening, isn't happening. Thank you. Very simple booking and storytelling. I mostly like the segment all things considered, but the camera cuts, my God, we know he's taking a beating with kendo sticks. I don't need a hundred cuts with a wobbly camera to tell me that this kid is getting the shit beat out of him. I can see it. I can see the welts uh, forming on him. I can see that the kendo sticks are actually hitting him. If you want to use camera cuts and shaky stuff for things that you need to kayfabe, I'm totally okay with that. But when this kid is out there taking stiff shots, show me the stiff shots. I don't need any I don't need any additional production to tell me that what's happening is brutal. It was brutal. Now, that segment was basically a microcosm for the rest of the show. It seemed like every single thing WWE did on Monday night was booked in a half hour block. Nothing, no story was really allowed to unfold over the course of the show with Different things in hour one, hour two, hour three. And you know, as a wrestling fan, that is what I want most from a three-hour show in particular, but even two-hour shows. I want to see a promo in the beginning, a backstage segment in the middle, and then a match at the end. I want reasons to develop for all of these things happening from one segment to the next. Instead, what WWE did was they basically started the show with 30 minutes of Seth Rollins and Dominic Mysterio. Then they gave us, you know, 30 minutes of basically... Angela Dawkins, Bianca Belair, and then, you know, her business. Then they gave us like 30 minutes straight of women's wrestling. And then they gave us 30 minutes at the end of the show with Ric Flair, you know, and Kevin Owens and Randy Orton. It just felt like, I don't even really know how to describe it. I would normally say it was disjointed, except it was overplanned. That's what it was. It felt like it was over segmented. And I don't think I've ever said that about the show. It's the exact opposite of what I want. It it was, hey, for this 30 minutes, you're going to watch these people and these people only. Almost like it was six shows in one on Monday night. And I thought that was a very strange way for them to block Raw off. Maybe they were trying something different to see if ratings were impacted, if people who liked certain people would just stay uh, rather than flip the channels. I don't know. But it, it as to me as a fan, it felt very weird watching when I kind of want my storytelling to be in soap opera form. I want to go back and forth between all the different feuds and get taste of each thing before each thing culminates in a big segment over the course of hour two and hour three. So speaking of that second segment, we saw Angelo Dawkins beat Andrade and Bianca Belair defeat Zelina Vega. Vega was pleading her innocence before the match. That was fine. Uh, But I hope there's actual resolution to Montez Ford being poisoned as opposed to the Jeff Hardy DUI angle where there was never proof Seamus or anyone else was specifically involved. Dawkins beating Andrade clean here was a bit of a surprise, even via distraction. And I was also surprised that Belair Vega went on as long as it did. Belair looked strong enough and won with her finisher, the KOD, and that was good. Plus the promo, you never really see Dawkins and and, uh, Belair together, you know, without Ford. So I thought that was a nice dynamic that you got them being side by side, both, you know, standing up for Montez Ford while simultaneously winning their singles matches. It does make me think, that Andrade, Angel Garza, and Zelina Vega are ultimately gonna take the titles at SummerSlam because they all got such clean wins on Monday. Nevertheless, I did enjoy the segment. I I love that Belair got some promo time. Dawkins did a good job with his promo as well. I believe in Belair long-term. I think she's a main event level women's wrestler. And I think we're just seeing the very beginnings of her character. I'm very excited. We also saw Shelton Benjamin defeat the United States champion, Apollo Cruz in a non-title match. Cruz promo before the match was pretty fire. Uh, he called himself a bad man, talked about knocking MVP's lights out. Pretty smart wording, great delivery. You can see that this guy has approved, improved on the mic in a major way from basically a couple years ago. But man, the booking of having your champion lose a non-title match that you know won't result in Benjamin getting an opportunity is such bad unnecessary booking. Such a disappointment. Why would you not just have Apollo Cruz win this? It doesn't matter. It's Shelton Benjamin. I mean, you only got a week until SummerSlam. The match is already set with MVP. Why the hell are you having your champion lose here? To, to make the Hurt Business look strong because they have strength in numbers, have Cruz beat Benjamin, Lashley run into the ring, put him in the full, full Nelson, you do the exact same thing you already did. It was a big disappointment for me. Moving back over to SmackDown, Matt Riddle defeated Sheamus in basically a disqualification match. It was a total banger. Riddle and Sheamus worked really well together. In the moment with the finish, I was very disappointed. I felt WWE ruined it with an unnecessary disqualification when Riddle could have just gone over Sheamus and then been attacked afterward and, excuse me, there's a lawnmower outside all of a sudden. I apologize for that. But this kept Riddle from looking as strong as he could have looked, which ultimately meant Riddle got a small boost instead of a larger one by beating someone like Sheamus. Why take the easy way out here when you're trying to build someone up? There's no need to protect Sheamus and this entire booking was specifically to protect him. All of that happens only for Chad Gable, now a heel apparently, to get annihilated by Riddle and then obliterated by two bro kicks. So we get teased last week with Gable being a real threat, grabbing Riddle from behind, hitting him with that awesome German suplex. And then for a couple minutes here, we see it again and we're like, oh man, they're doing something with Riddle. Only to once again, be reminded that this guy cannot stack up to other superstars, the caliber of Matt Riddle and Sheamus. Zero point Mr. Lutarski. You have Jeff Hardy fight Baron Corbin, which was a slow match. Neither of their best work. Sheamus interferes. It made sense given the earlier booking. So at least they followed through with it. Then you have Sheamus versus Baron Corbin, which I guess they were building to from the other interferences. But again, Sheamus is a heel and it just ragged on Jeff Hardy for being an alcoholic, okay? But he interferes in that match. Now he's fighting Baron Corbin. This was a banger. It actually was. Sheamus and Corbin were in a real hoss fight. It was far better than the Hardy match. So we finally get a clean finish here. And this time it's Riddle interfering because he hates Corbin. So coming out of this, Coming out of this entire thing, Riddle looks good, Sheamus looks good, Corbin looks okay because he only lost via clear distraction, but Chad Gable looks like a total piece of shit. And why did they go through all these machinations? There's no title in this picture. So what exactly will the end result be of all of this other than a random tag team match next week that results in a Riddle-Corbin match that we would have gotten anyway at SummerSlam? I guess I don't mind the creativity of them doing a show-long storyline, but it feels like they didn't think it through, that they didn't actually say to themselves as they were booking it, what is the point of us doing this? To me, the only thing that they actually accomplished was reminding us that they don't believe in Chad Gable, that all these other guys can look strong, but Chad Gable is going to get absolutely murdered by Matt Riddle and Sheamus. And you guys know how much I love Chad Gable, so... Just a total disappointment for me. Again, volleying back and forth between good and bad. The dirt sheet with Sonya Deville. I could spend all day on here talking about the hair part with the the wig that talked with Miz and Morrison. I could do it. I was gonna leave it to Chris to to break that part of this down. He's not here, so we're not even gonna talk about it any further. Let's pass that. Let's get to the good. Sonya Deville's promo was freaking fire. Sonya Deville has... it. I'm going to do it again since I delayed it. Sonia Deville has it, folks. Unlike the prior dirt sheets, The Miz and John Morrison set her up perfectly here and actually worked to get her over. And it was a success. Sonia Deville continued to make a compelling case for her legitimate hatred of Mandy Rose. And she keeps proving she has what it takes to be a star in WWE. The eventual heavy machinery versus Miz Morrison feud was obvious after last week. Sometimes
1: predictable things are
0: good. But it was well-booked, and it made total storyline sense for them to attack here. Then we get Heavy Machinery versus Ms. Morrison. They pay it off later in the show. I was totally okay with it. It was a great follow-up promo from Otis and Tucker ahead of the match. It felt serious and real, not corny and gimmicky like usual when they talk. I also obviously appreciated that Otis this time had the Money in the Bank briefcase. That was good. Ms. and Morrison did a promo backstage just like last week. It was way better than their work in the dirt sheet in the actual ring. The match itself was really exciting. And in this case, the Mandy Rose run-in made all the sense in the world. Even them stopping the match was okay because the action of Mandy Rose brawling with Sonya Deville spilled into the ring and interrupted the match. Unlike when Asuka attacked Bayley on Raw, I guess, two weeks ago at this point. So, while some of the previous run ins that WWE's done where they call for the bell for no good reason, and again, excuse this lawnmower that keeps coming by, I'm very sorry, I don't have time to tape the show multiple times today. Um, but all of that, all those previous run ins didn't make any sense for them to call the disqualification. This one made total sense for them to call the disqualification. So, good on WWE for doing that. We also got Cesaro and Lince Dorado in a match. I. Love that Lucha House Party is getting more screen time and excelling in these opportunities. They are so entertaining in the ring and so underrated. Yes, underrated on the mic. What a fantastic wrestling match between these two. Two very talented wrestlers with vastly different styles meshing together incredibly well. As the new champion, Cesaro rightly won with the Gotch Neutralizer, but that was an awesome 10-minute match between Cesaro and Lince Dorado. Then we got that absolutely fantastic backstage promo from Big E, who basically was just telling us he believes in himself, he believes that he what he's able to accomplish in WWE as a singles competitor. There's not even much I can say about it. It was incredible. Mixed real life with kayfabe seriousness and comedy. This man is gold. Big E is a main eventer. And I really hope that this singles push gives WWE the opportunity to see that. Back to Raw to finish up here. We saw Mickey James, Natalia and Lana return. And I know what you all think Silver King is going to hate this. Shockingly, I liked it. I wish James got to actually share whatever her announcement was going to be that she was there to say. But Natalia and Lana played really well off each other. You're supposed to hate them. They're annoying social media influencers who are egotistical and think too much of themselves. That works as a tag team. WWE needs more women's tag teams. I also liked seeing Mickey James back. So now you have three women's tag teams on Raw, and you have a potential Mickey James Natalia feud, even if it's just for Natalia to get over on a veteran to give Natalia and Lana some semblance of success or legitimacy as a team. I'm totally fine with that. So this was shockingly a win for me on Monday night. I never thought I would say that about a Lana segment randomly with Natalya and Mickey James. It worked for me. It just did. You also saw Peyton Royce defeat Liv Morgan. This match was nothing special, though Royce and Morgan are both good. They're both also improving. And Royce got to hit that awesome spinning brain buster finisher, which was really nice. I like that they didn't have Morgan and Ruby Riot work perfectly together immediately off the bat, kind of like Andrade and Angel Garza. You create some tension from a new team Sheamus and Cesaro, they did the same thing. It doesn't work at the beginning, but eventually they begin to learn to trust each other. In their case, trust each other again. And they go on to a lot of success. I do think they will ultimately be the ones who take the women's tag team titles off Sasha Banks and Bayley. And if that's going to be the case, I don't want to see Liv Morgan and Ruby Riot one day make up perfectly and, and be perfectly in sync again. I want there to be some struggles, but that trust to build. That is storytelling. It's what we ask WWE to do. You can't get mad when they actually do it. And then I'm going to end, of course, on a sour note. The Viking Raiders, Ricochet, and Cedric Alexander in an eight-man tag team match against the Ninjas. What the hell was the point of this? It lasted a minute. Why are the Ninjas still around? Okay, for a couple weeks with Big Ninja... It was kind of funny. All right, I can admit it. It, it. it gave me a little chuckle. And I said, oh, that's kind of cool. They're doing something. It made sense. Not, not made sense, but the, the way they introduced them in the Viking Raiders angle with the Street Profits. Okay, why are the Viking Raiders, one week after we just saw Eric, demolish someone in Raw Underground? Why are they back to being corny and fighting ninjas? Why are Ricochet and Cedric Alexander on their side here? Like, why did there need to be an eight-man match? why are these two teams together? Zero storytelling behind it. These ninjas need to be gone forever. And if this match, this eight-man match, only was a vehicle for the 24-7 championship to change hands a 38th time via roll-up, give me a break. I'm not going to go on about this title. It sucks. It could have been something good. They ruined it, and they keep ruining it, and they keep digging the grave, you want six feet deep, it's 16. No, it's 60 feet deep, this grave, for the 24 seven championship. Either fix it, move it to Raw Underground, do something with it, or get rid of it. Every single thing they are doing with this is insulting our intelligence. And man, it goes to prove some of the criticisms people have with WWE. I do not hate comedy. I don't hate comedy wrestling. I don't hate comedy booking. You can do it right. This is not right, it's wrong. Shame on them, this is absolutely horrible. Okay, that is our complete breakdown of SmackDown and Raw, the week that was in WWE over the last seven days. Plenty happened, it was a really interesting week. I didn't realize when I built the show, when I outlined it, how I segmented things, that we were gonna really go back and forth between the good and the bad, but that is an example of what WWE is today. For everything good to great thing that they do, they do something bad, too awful. And you saw it. The greatness of the Randy Orton, Ric Flair segment contrasted with the awfulness of retribution. The greatness of the Sasha Banks and Bailey stuff that they're doing contrasted with the awfulness of at least the storyline portion of the Sheamus, Matt Riddle, Jeff Hardy, Baron Corbin thing that, again, ended up having a couple good matches. Two of the three matches were really good, But from a storyline standpoint, it didn't really make much sense. So you just go back and forth with WWE. And you know, people think when I, on Thursdays, break down NXT and AEW, that I'm especially nice uh, for one brand or especially mean towards another. No, just like anyone else, there's things that I like in professional wrestling and there's things that I don't. WWE is in this really weird area right now where in this COVID era, pandemic era, for lack of a better term, they found themselves in many way. They're telling longer-term storylines. They're more a little bit more attention to detail within those longer-term storylines. But simultaneously, they're throwing shit against the wall to see if it sticks, and it doesn't, and it's not working, and the things that they're throwing against the wall, they're not really putting thought into how they will work, what the long-term storylines are. What is the purpose of Retribution? If you are going to debut a new faction, you need to have an end goal in mind. You want me to give credit to AEW? Look at the elite, okay? they inter- The elite existed. They have a long-term storyline plan with clearly either the breakup of Kenny Omega, Hangman Page, and the Young Bucks, or the strengthening of them, where they're a faction that is now split. Hangman Page looks like he's gonna turn heel or something is gonna happen with him where he starts beating on his own brother's for lack of a better term. And all of a sudden they figure out a way to get him back in the fold and they're stronger than ever. There there are reasons to create factions. There's ways to book factions. And what WWE is doing with retribution is almost every single thing that is wrong right now. We have, they have no purpose. They've given too much away. They've left nothing to the imagination and they've basically made them look like dorks. And I don't even know why I'm finishing the show on Retribution when I kind of wanted to finish on a positive note. But when you go into this week, when you go into SmackDown on Friday, when you go into Raw next Monday, remember SmackDown is taped. It's gonna be the same as last week in terms of Retribution, we think. Don't expect there to be any differences the way they look, the way they act, or anything like that. But come Monday, when WWE starts its new tapings ahead of SummerSlam, and I believe they're only taping the Raw and SmackDown and NXT before SummerSlam and TakeOver 30. I do not believe they're doing the week after as well. I think they're gonna wait until after SummerSlam. At least I hope to do that. Hopefully we see a little bit more of what Retribution can possibly be and what Raw Underground can possibly be if they actually listen to people watching the show and critiquing them. But if come Monday, Retribution and Raw Underground are the exact same as they've been the last two weeks, then you know exactly what WWE thinks about you as a fan, what you want in professional wrestling, because they don't know. At least right now, they don't know. And your intelligence as a viewer. That is it for today's episode. Thank you all for listening. I know it was a little weird with the Silver King doing a solo WWE show, but I hope you enjoyed it. There was a lot to talk about. We got it done in basically an hour so. That is pretty nice. Reminder: Thursday show where we break down everything that happens on AEW Dynamite and in NXT. We will have a special guest, so no one on Tuesday show, but we have a person on Thursday show. And Chris Vanini, our normal WWE co-host, will be back next Tuesday to break down everything in the world of WWE. Again, you can follow me, the Silver King, at Silverstein Adam. Please, if you're on Twitter, follow our show at Getting overcast. I tweet thoughts about wrestling all week long. Clips, audio, a ton of cool stuff over there. I retweet superstars, all that good stuff. Follow at Getting Overcast and head on over to Apple Podcasts. Leave me that five-star rating and review. Let me know how much you love our show. Every single five-star rating helps us. Every single one. So, so with that, The Silver King is here to say goodbye. That means there's only one more person to talk to you before we get out of here.
1: We got something going that's really big. Yeah. We're going to the school right now and tell them about Macho Madness. Tell them how strong it is and tell them where we're going. Yeah. We've got Twilight Sun. Yeah. And how Corgan's got no chance doesn't know, Does anybody in there?
0: and thank you all, for listening bye for now Okay, is a